This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. If you would uh, pray with me for just a moment. Lord, though um, mountains quake and waters roar and foam and nations are in an uproar, you speak a word and the earth melts. Speak a word to our hearts that our hearts might melt, that we might know your presence here and we might quieten down to be still and know that you are God. You will be exalted in the heavens and you will be exalted in the earth. For we ask in Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Um, for a long time, the nations of Chile and Argentina have had a relatively good relationship. They were both regions under the Spanish Empire in Latin America, and they share much in common. They share a border that's 3,300 miles. They share a mountain that separates the two countries. They share some, some ancestral heritage. They shared also and supporting one another in the revolutions that went on uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, each supporting and fighting for the other to break free from Spanish colonialism. Uh, and even today, they still have very good relations, economically, military, uh, and various ways. But at the beginning of the 20th century, something arose that had them at the brink of war, something that never happened between the two before. Um, and full-out war was averted uh, by means of diplomatic intervention. It, it generally, genuinely was miraculous. Uh, amongst the negotiators was uh, Bishop Benevente of Argentina, and commenting on the peace deal, he quoted this. He said, my country may well be in the wrong on this matter. Let us find out where the real answer lies. Let us see who is wrong. Let us not think of our own nation, but of justice. Wow. Such humility to seek the common good and not just winning, right? Now there's a statue that was created in 1904 to commemorate this, and it's on the highest peak going across the crest of the mountain. And it's called um, uh, the, the Christ of the Andes. It was erected in 1904. And uh, the plaque at the base reads this. Sooner shall these mountains crumble into dust than Chileans and Argentinians break the peace which at the feet of Christ the Redeemer they have sworn to maintain. Wow. Talk about wisdom. Wisdom for the benefit of the common good. Wisdom to bring all the issues and lay it at the feet of Christ where true justice is exercised. We're in the middle of a series, or at the beginning actually of a series, on provision in the midst of a pandemic. It might seem odd that we want to talk about God's provision when we feel so much deprivation, right? Um, but we want to take stock of the way God is present in our lives and the way God is providing for our lives. So last week, Mother Karen spoke to us about God's primary provision is in sending Jesus, in whom all our needs are summed up. He is what we need, and we should seek him first, above all things. Everything else is simply added to it. This week, we consider God's provision for justice and salvation, because justice is found in God alone. 
Let me say that again. True justice is found in God alone because he's the only one just enough, wise enough, loving enough to exercise true justice for the common good. Now, in classical terms, justice comes in four types. I'm sorry to go prof on you here, but there are four types of justice. Um, there is procedural justice, there's retributive justice, there's restorative justice, and then there's distributive justice. And then really, the way I see it, they break into two different categories. These two are more juridical, the first two, because they're really about upholding the law, the procedures, how will we exercise justice, and then what do we do to punish those who don't live into the law? The second two, the restorative and the, the distributive, are really relational. They're really about restoring the balance of power in restorative justice, when things are out of whack, say in, in a covenant between two folks in marriage, or in a contract between folks in business, or at worst, when there's oppression and an oppressor and the oppressed. How do we restore the balance and relationship? And all of these are aimed at redistribution, so that nobody has too much or nobody has too little, because that's very close to God's heart. And when we think of God, when we think theologically, all of those are at play, but I want to say supremely those last two, those last two, the restorative and the distributive sorts of justice are on God's heart. And it fits because God made all of creation to be in relationship with him. All the others are necessary, but God's justice is always aimed at relationship, that we would live with each other and with him and with creation in a just society. Because God's not some kind of moral scaffolding to the universe. God is a person, and he's created us in his image to have a relationship with him, to be in relationship. And his sense of justice is not just upholding procedures of the law, but restoring and distributing salvation in the coming of his kingdom. Of course, Colossians 1, 19 and 20 tells us that um, he was pleased, that the fullness of God, he was pleased to have the fullness of God in Jesus, and that through him, by the shedding of his blood, to bring about peace and reconciling all things to himself in heaven and on earth. That's God's mission. That's God's nature. And he's the only one wise enough to bring about true justice and salvation through his reign. So let's think for a moment this morning about Isaiah. I want to turn to that passage in Isaiah because I think it's just a fabulous passage that, that shows us so much of this being played out. One of the primary themes in Isaiah is the sovereignty of God that he exercises through justice through his chosen Messiah. And we see the theme of sovereignty from beginning to end. Chapter one, I won't get into it for the sake of time, but chapter one is really a courtroom scene where God calls the heavens and the earth as witnesses. And then he starts to lay out, here are the accusations against you, Judah, and against you, nations of the world. You have not sought me, you have sought your own. And all the way out to 66, which is the last chapter, where the verdict comes in. Hear the word of the Lord. And he starts to lay out, this is what's going to happen because God will bring about justice. He will judge, he has the right to. He created it and he will bring everything to be conformed to his will. 
and it's always for the good. And we hear in that all of those sorts of things, the procedural, the retributive, um, but supremely that relational restoration and distribution of his salvation to all who turn to him and seek his reign. And Isaiah was acquainted with justice because he lived in court. He's a well-educated man, probably cousin to the kings through five different kings of, Egypt, of, of Israel. So let's turn and look at um, this section of Isaiah 25, 1 through 9, because it's showing us these three, or at least three of the types of justice. It begins with verses 2 and 3 are retributive justice, where God punishes and then restorative justice in four and five, and then distributive justice in six through nine. And that's where it's all aimed, is the redistribution under his reign of his goodness. So, the retributive. Um, let's start first with uh, the way this works. It's, this is supreme poetry. Isaiah was, was just so eloquent. And the whole thing works almost like a psalm because instead of declaring it to the people of Israel, he's talking to God about what he sees God doing. The vision captures him. He's seeing something really mis just majestic unfolding in front of him. And where he starts is with praise. You. Oh my God, I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. The only proper response when God gives us such a majestic vision. Verses 2 and 3, he then goes on to show that um, the fortified city and the palaces of ruthless nations you've turned into rubble. Probably what he has in the back of his mind, and mind you, this is, an, this is an eternal vision. This is a prophetic vision that God has given him. He's looking back. He's looking forward all at once. He's seeing the whole as God reveals to him. And he's probably thinking of escape from Egypt and the oppression that was there. He's probably also thinking about Babylon and Assyria, where they went into exile. In all those places, they were made slaves. He's also probably thinking of the Phoenicians, and the Romans who came in and took over the land of Egypt, or excuse me, the land of Israel itself and suppressed them in place. All of this, and Isaiah is saying, he's turned their cities and their palaces to rubble. He's brought them down. Not just because he wants to save his own people, and he does, but also that maybe by him bringing them down, they too might turn to him and cry out. So in the next verse, we see that he says um, that he, certainly, uh, that, that they'll never be rebuilt, and they, these ruthless nations will glorify God, and they will fear you, Lord. Has echoes of Philippians 2, where Jesus, who did not seek equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and died on the cross, so that at his name every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have a choice. You can either choose that, or in horror of judgment, you'll turn around screaming God's praise. It's never God's intent to bring about retribution in such a way. I'm convinced. It's about bringing us to the end of ourselves that we would pursue him and seek him. Because as St. Peter reminds us, God, is not, well, God does not desire anyone should perish, but that all should repent and turn to him. 
Well, it now turns to the restorative elements in 4 and 5 because the purpose of this retributive justice is to bring restoration. And in verses 4 and 5, he has this relational thing to say, Lord, you've been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress, a shelter in a rainstorm when the blast the blast or the, 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 the braggadocious um, acts and speech of ruthless was like a winter rainstorm. God's restoring things. He's rebalancing the relationships of power going on here. Arguably, what Isaiah is seeing here is the same thing St. John was seeing in Revelation. Because in Revelation, you keep getting these courtroom and these, these throne room scenes over and over again. Uh, uh, Revelation 4 and 5 and 7 and 12 and 19 and 21 and 22. You get this glimpse of what God is doing. And God is restoring things. And it takes retribution sometimes to get attention so that people turn back to him. That certainly is what's happening in chapter 6 of Revelation. When the seals are opened and destruction is wrought on the earth, the next thing we see is those who are being restored and those who are finding God's distribution, the distributive justice of God where he starts to take care of everything. So let's turn and look at 6 through 9, the messianic banquet. This is a theme that runs through all of the Old Testament. and certainly all the way through Isaiah. It's in chapter one here in 25, it's in 55, which I spoke on this past summer. Um, It's in 58, it's in 61. It runs all the way through the book, this messianic banquet that God has prepared a table that is gonna, that after things are restored, he wants to invite us to come celebrate with me. I created you to spend eternity with me. I created you in love, you're my children, I want you. And so we get this picture here. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, fine wines, well-aged. I don't know about you, but my taste buds are starting to go, and I start to salivate. I think about what's that banquet going to be like. Actually, I'm hoping in heaven I get to be in the kitchen. I love to cook. I mean, it's where, if you remember chariots of fire, I feel his pleasure when I run. That's me in the kitchen. I hope I get to cook in heaven. But all of a sudden, there's this banquet that's being thrown, this messianic banquet. Um, And I can't help but remember and wonder if Isaiah wasn't also seeing the exodus and that rather meager meal of bitter herbs and roasted lamb and bread to give them sustenance to get out of Egypt, strength on the way, and that meal celebrating the same but at a new level in the Last Supper at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, and a new exodus is taking place, an exodus out of sin and death, the very meal that we celebrate week in, week out, where we get a foretaste of the kingdom of God and the justice of God being served and the salvation of God. Well, the effects of that, he goes on, Um, He starts to say, on this mountain, I will destroy the shroud of death. On this mountain is Zion, where the Last Supper took place. On this mountain is Jerusalem and Zion, where Jesus died and rose again. On this mountain, I will destroy death. Jesus, taking on flesh, takes everything that we are and meets us face to face. He was like us in every way, but without sin, and he dies. And he hands all of humanity, all of creation, back into his father's hands. 
and it was not possible for the Lord of Life to be kept in death. So three days later, he comes back, and everything starts to be renewed. This is where the distributive justice really comes into play. This is where, where the crucifixion and resurrection we see is his work, not ours. For us in this tradition, we talk about uh, um, justification by faith. It's not our works that earn us. This is God's work, and all we need to do is to turn back to him. And then in gratitude, we might, we will go into works, but it's not earned by us. It's by justification by faith that he has done this. And the end result is an end to grief and disgrace, where he wipes away every tear from our eyes. In his death and resurrection, Jesus has destroyed death, overcome death and the grave and the world and the devil. But then he also destroys grief and shame. Those two will be no more as he wipes away every tear from our eyes. What we're looking at is salvation on absolutely every level. Social, because all, every tongue, tribe, and nation um, are, are equal before him. And physical and material in food and preservation and refuge and shelter and emotional. And of course, in Revelation, it's also spiritual. We're springs of living water. We're led to springs of living water that his Holy Spirit welling up within us to eternal life. Salvation all the way through. That's what God's interested in. Not salvation in our heads, but salvation of our relationships, salvation of our society, salvation of our bodies. No more death, no more hunger, no more sin. True salvation and the only proper response is praise. This is the Lord whom we have waited for. We will rejoice in his salvation. It turns out that in Christ we're spared much of his retributive justice because the iniquity of us all was laid on him. Though sometimes God even uses that to get our attention. It does happen. We find that by his Holy Spirit, his restorative justice is conforming us to his image so that we are being restored to what we were designed by God to be so that we will be able to share eternity with him. And his distributive justice manifests in the messianic banquet to which we are called. We are given way more than we deserve because justice isn't about getting what we deserve. It's not about fairness. It's about what's right and it's about fullness that God holds out to us. The fullness that he wants, the flourishing that he longs for. And here we see no distinction between justice and salvation and the kingdom of God. To God it's all one thing because God is one, right? He just looks and says, well, it's coming forth from my nature. It's just one thing. It's for the common good. It's for the good of all, because that's the way God operates. We don't bring about justice the way we don't bring about salvation. It's God's work. It's God's provision. And when we turn to him, we're invited to participate and pass it on. I'm not saying that we shouldn't get involved in issues of justice, by no means. I just say we're not the origin of it, and we need to catch his vision and bring it back to him and say, I'll keep you company. I will do anything with you to see to it that that has happened because you've done it in me. One of my great concerns for um, society and the political climate 
in both the judicial and political systems that, that are around the world, it's everywhere, is um, it often seems like people are more interested in winning than the common good. Breaks my heart. And if we ever needed justice, salvation, the reign of God, it's now. We always did, but it's really pretty evident to us right now. Do I need to list out the issues at play? You probably could do it as fast as I could. Um, racial, sexual, economic injustice and inequalities. The climatic, storms and fires and droughts. Um, COVID-19, the political, all of it, great duress. And the question is, which one do we focus on first? Because it's so confusing. And the answer is a bit more simple. We have to focus, we do have to do something but we need to focus on the Lord first. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, his justice. Everything else will be added. Jesus said at the second coming that when you see all these signs happening, stand erect, look up, look at me, because your redemption is near. No one knows the day of the hour. But he promises if we look to him, he will meet us. So here's just a, a couple of things I want to close by. Just a couple of, of things for you to consider. What might you do? First is to quieten down, dip below the surface, and pray. Consider the Lord's provision of justice for you. What has God done in you? You are justified by him so that he can exercise his justice in and around you. How has he set things right in you? Pray, reflect, praise him. And once we catch that vision, the second is as we come to the Eucharist, which really is about justice and salvation and the kingdom of God coming all at once, right? Ask for a vision of the messianic banquet. What exactly are you doing? and then ask for grace to walk in it, that we feed on his presence and let him untangle our lives, let him untangle this world. And then, third, as you leave, strengthened by the messianic banquet to go out into the world, keep your eyes peeled and your hearts open. Ask for grace and strength to cooperate as he works out his justice because he is bringing it about. And he invites us to be partners with him. But if we start to think that we are the source of justice, then we're operating by the world's rules. Justice is of God because he's the only one wise enough and just enough and good enough and loving enough. That's what drives the whole enterprise. This, he is consummate in all these things. It's his very being that he wants to bring about for the good of all because he is good. May his kingdom genuinely come and salvation be seen and justice served in our Lord, who himself longs to see all of creation regained and will bring it about. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.